We're continuing today our series on the gospel according to, you know, I heard this week someone mentioned that if Jesus, if we assume Jesus spent every day with his disciples over the course of three years, and if we assume that he spent about eight hours a day with these disciples, that he would have spent about 8,760 hours teaching his disciples personally. And they were still idiots. So it makes the space that we're trying to create here over the next 30 minutes seem a little ambitious. But fortunately, we're talking about the gospel according to Zechariah. And Zechariah is just a lot of softballs. I mean, a lot of alley-oops. Let's look for just a moment at Zechariah 14, 12. This is the kind of stuff we're dealing with today. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall rot while they are still on their feet. Their eyes shall rot in their sockets and their tongues shall rot in their mouths. This is the word of the Lord. So needless to say, Zechariah is a pretty wild ride. There's a lot happening here. And let me just give you a quick overview of what's happening in the book of Zechariah. So this book is set after the return of the exiles to Jerusalem from Babylon. And they're remembering Jeremiah's prophecy. They're remembering that Jeremiah told them that they would be in in exile for 70 years and that afterwards God will restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all the nations. This is the prophecy that Jeremiah gives. But life in this Jerusalem that they've returned to is hard. And the people want to know why. So Zechariah is striving in this prophetic moment to give an answer to this why. And Zechariah says to the people, turn back to God. Don't be like your ancestors who found themselves in exile. And at this point, the people of God are a bit more attentive to the message of returning to God because they can remember what exile looked like. So these new people, they repent and they humble themselves before God, or so it seems. So the book opens with this series of, again, very bizarre, very wild uh, images and visions, things that are not unlike your dreams. We have horns that are scattering the people of Israel. And then we have a blacksmith who comes in to destroy all of the horns and to scatter the horns. We have women being carried off in baskets that have wings. We have a scroll flying through the city of Jerusalem, which is supposed to signify this sort of rule of law that is now going to rule the land, that somehow the scriptures are going to cleanse and purify the city's streets. And then at the end of all of these crazy visions, we get a bonus vision of this person of Joshua. And Joshua would have been known as the high priest. And Joshua, during his time in exile, he wore these these dirty clothes, these rags, to symbolize the suffering of the people of Israel, why they are in exile. 
But this bonus vision is this high priest, Joshua, he's, he's been given a new robe. He's been given a crown, which is symbolizing the fact that he is here to not only be a priest, but also some sort of kingly figure to the people. But what they keep coming back to is why is life so hard? If this was the prophecy, if this was the word of the Lord, that we were going to be in exile for 70 years and those 70 years are up and we are now in the new Jerusalem, why is there only a foundation of the temple? Why hasn't everything been restored to rights? And this is what Zechariah keeps coming to. The people want to know and keep asking, is God coming soon? Is God coming soon? It's a question that we've probably asked on our own lips. Is God coming soon? And Zechariah takes this idea and he flips it around on the people and says, will you become the kind of people ready to participate in God's kingdom? Two very different approaches. So then in the final sections, we have this image of a coming new king. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice, Jerusalem, your king comes. He is righteous, humble, and he rides a donkey. Doesn't that sound familiar? This new king is also depicted as a shepherd, among other shepherds, the leaders of Israel. And this new king is rejected by the sheep, by the people of Israel, and they follow these other shepherds. Then in the, in the final two chapters, we have the images of this coming kingdom, this depiction of what God's rule and reign is going to look like when God is confronting the evil among the nations, and he pours out a spirit of repentance on his people. This new Jerusalem, it becomes a gathering point for all of the nations. There's a river that flows from the temple, this river of life-giving water that's flowing out to all of creation, establishing a new Garden of Eden in the world. And the point seems to be that this future kingdom that we get this image of, this coming reign of the Messiah, that it'll only come when God's people are faithful. When is God coming Again, when will you become the people who are ready to participate in the coming reign of the Lord? So what is the word for sanctuary? How is this strange book full of horns and baskets and winged women and blacksmiths and all of these other crazy things that are happening, how is this good news for us? I have no idea. <laughs> but the question I kept coming back to this week is, are we, as sanctuary, are we determined to be a prophetic people? And I think we are. I think that's something that sanctuary uh, is graced to be. It's a, it's a calling that sanctuary has picked up in the city of Tulsa, that we are called to be some sort of prophetic people. And when I say prophetic, I'm not talking about the fortune-telling, like predicting the future kind of prophecy. 
That's not the Christian version of what it means to be prophetic. To be prophetic is to live your life in a way that is inspired. To live prophetic, to live a life that is prophetic, it looks more like the sail of a ship, that it's there and it has a function and it is ready to move the ship, but it requires wind to animate it and to move it along. To be a prophetic people means to live in the world and to move and to live and to realize that there's much more going on here than what we see happening, that God is involved in people's lives and he is moving in amongst us. And what we are responsible to do is to orient ourselves to be people that are ready to participate in what God is doing. So again, I think sanctuary is called and is graced to be this prophetic kind of people. But to be prophetic is not just human effort. It's not just our passion or our emotion or our rationale. But somehow, as we go about our lives and we do what we do and we say what we say, there's a sense of a wind, of something more behind what's happening. To pull off being a prophetic people, we have to have a certain kind of mindset about what we're doing, particularly in these kinds of spaces, to go about living our lives in a certain way. Remember James 1, it says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I think oftentimes it's easy for us to not listen, to speak very quickly, and to get angry even faster. But that's not the life that we're called to. We're not called to be a reactionary sort of people. Being reactionary actually prohibits us from being a prophetic people. So if we're going to be people who carry the breath of God into the world, we need to be slow to speak, slow to become angry, and refuse to be people who are going to react. One of the things that we see in the Gospels over and over again is that the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus into reacting to a certain situation. You remember the story where they bring the woman in front of Jesus who's just been caught in the act of adultery. And they say to Jesus, what should we do with her? Should we stone her? In the moment, they're trying to get him to react to the situation. And what does Jesus do? He takes a moment, takes a knee, starts writing in the dust. And we don't know what he wrote. We don't know what he was doing. But we can surmise that on some level, he was refusing to react to the emotional hype of what was right in front of him. So to be a prophetic voice in a city like Tulsa is hard because what we believe about how God acts and how he moves in the world Tulsa is one of these evangelical, charismatic centers of the world. And I think that we have some of these understandings that God works and he moves and acts in certain ways, that God's power is almost always presented to us in a certain way, that what God does in the world always has to be big and demonstrative and powerful in order for it to be something that God is doing amongst us. This is the tempo of power that we're accustomed to. 
But I think one of the things that sanctuary is graced to catch on to is that God is more often in the still, small voice of it all. And realize at the same time, it's all the power of the Holy Spirit. Whether it is big and demonstrative and in your face, or whether it's simply living your life in a certain way that is oriented to the work of God in the world, both of them is functioning by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the key themes that we find in Zechariah is that Zechariah is called the prophet of small things. Let's look at Zechariah 8, 15. It says, So again, I have purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things are like and all these things I hate, says the Lord. The things that God calls his people to are the common stuff of everyday life. The small areas of daily conversation, how we speak to one another, and business, how we interact with one another, how we exchange goods, the attitudes of how we respond, the promises that we make to one another. Hannah Moore, an early 19th century author, reflecting on Zechariah, said, it's important to practice the smaller virtues, to avoid scrupulously the lesser sins, and to bear patiently with minor trials. The acquisition of even the smallest virtue is actually a conquest over the opposite vice and doubles our moral strength. Later on, Richard Foster was commenting on these themes of Zechariah and reflecting on Hannah Moore's quote here. And he urged Christians to consider them with, quote, utmost serious. He says, frankly, the battle is won or lost precisely in the trifling areas of life. It is the small fidelities that are most helpful in training the heart toward God. These thousands upon thousands of little actions of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit slowly but surely change our heart. More than any other thing, the small corners of life reveal who we truly are. The large virtues most often occur in our public forum, and usually we are able to put on a good front when we know others are watching but it is in the unguarded moment, however, when no one is watching, that what is really in our heart comes to the surface. And may the revelation of our heart be a cause for rejoicing in the goodness of God. End quote. See, there's something about attending faithfully to the small, to the everyday issues of our lives that places our heart and our lives smack dab in the center of what God is doing that it pleases the heart of God more than the big and demonstrative, exciting moments. This idea appears in our gospel text today when the disciples are scrambling to figure out how they're going to feed all of these people. Remember what he said, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And the question he asks Jesus, but what are they among so many people? All we have is a little bit. All we have is our common everyday life that we go about working 
caring for our family, loving our neighbors. But what are they among so many things? I think as evangelicals and charismatics, we often think that any sort of move of the Spirit has to be big, that the work of God, the power of God, has a certain tempo, and that tempo is fast and it's loud. But what if God is more often in the small things, in the little common everyday choices that we make, how we speak to our children, the kindness that we show to strangers, our refusal to react or to get angry with people who think or act or believe differently than we do? In the book of Genesis, there is this curious story about this individual that we love to talk about, Abraham. And at this point in the story, Abraham is still named Abram. And he's returning from battle, and he's traveling through this area known as the King's Valley. And while he's journeying, he runs into King Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And a funny thing happens. King Melchizedek comes out carrying bread and wine, and meets Abraham. And he feeds him, gives him something to drink, and he blesses Abraham, and then goes on his way. Why is this a funny story? If we remember anything about Abraham, we remember that Abraham is the one that God called to leave his people, to go start a new people, a new nation, a new tribe, and that these people are purposed, they are called to go and bless the other nations. Abraham is in on what God is doing in the world. So he's going about doing it. And while he's going about doing this new thing that God is about in the world, along comes Melchizedek, and they call him a priest of the God Most High. Usually kings rule over some area of land or some people, or some region. But here we have King Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High. And what does he do? He shows up to Abraham with bread and with wine, and he blesses Abraham. How is Melchizedek in on the thing that God is already doing in the world? Isn't Abraham the one who's supposed to be going about bringing the bread and bringing the wine and doing all of the blessing? See, I think part of our posture needs to be like Melchizedek, that we journey through the world, and we don't know where people are coming from. We don't know where they're going. We don't know their political affiliation. We don't know what kind of day they just had. We don't know what they believe. But our responsibility is to be Melchizedek, to bring the bread and to bring the wine and to simply bless people. And maybe God's doing something in their life. God was up to something with Abraham. We don't know if Melchizedek knew that, but he shows up and he blesses him and he goes on his way. One of the interesting things that we see about Melchizedek is that when the writer of Hebrews is trying to find words to describe Jesus and how who he is, he's a priest, but he's not a priest in the way that we've known priests 
to function. And he's a king, but he's not a king in the way that we've known kings to function. He's kind of in this middle gray area where he rules, but he rules because of the authority of God. And this is what the writer of Hebrews does. He compares Jesus to Melchizedek. He says, one who has become a priest, speaking of Jesus, though not through a legal requirement concerning some physical descent, but through the power of an indestructible life. And it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the image the Hebrew writer offers, that when you think of Jesus, think about the people who show up and bless others the people offering a meal and a blessing. There was no light from heaven. There was no big, booming voice of God. He simply showed up with a meal and a blessing. The simple attentiveness to both God and neighbor that led Melchizedek to Abraham. So quickly, what does it mean? And what does it look like for sanctuary, for us, to be this kind of prophetic people in a city. First, if we want to be a prophetic group, and I think we do, we don't need a whole bunch of people. Sometimes less is really more in this kind of scenario. Remember in the story of Judges 7 when Gideon's army is going off to battle, And they have 32,000 troops with them getting ready to march against the Midianites, the bad guys. And God says to Gideon, he says, you have too many people. What's going to happen is if you go into the fight and you win, all of these people are going to think that they won because of their own strength and their own might, their own power. So there's too many of you here. So go to the people and tell them, if anybody's nervous about what's about to take place, if anybody's a little freaked out, You can go home. And 22,000 people turned around and went home. In my notes, I had this moment where I was going to look to Pastor Brent and say, can you imagine getting up and like preaching a sermon and 22,000 people turn around and go home? And then there was this funny line where it's like, well, no, because I can't imagine even being in front of 22,000 people. And it was going to be a whole thing. And he... So he's still left with 10,000 people, and God says, nah, you've still got too many. I'll sort them out for you. So he says, take them to get something to drink. Take them to the water. And look for the people who scoop up the water in their hands. And the text tells us, and laps up the water with their tongue like a dog. Those are the people you're going to take into the battle with you. And the thing about these people is that they're attentive to what's going on more than just their own needs, more than just coming to the water and immersing themselves in what they think they need. They're attentive to the fact that something else is happening here. They're keeping their eyes up. They're alert. They've ordered their lives in a certain way so that they can pay attention to what's going on. But there's only 300 of those folks out of 32,000 people. See, it doesn't take a lot of people to do what God is asking, to be a prophetic people in a place and in a city, sometimes less is really more. Second, 
If we want to be a prophetic community, I think we have to deal with truth appropriately. And the assumption here is that to deal with truth appropriately means that there is also an inappropriate way that we can handle truth. Do we use truth like a whip? Do we use it in a way to control other people? Do we use it in a way to beat people over the head and try and beat them into submission to what we think they ought to be doing because we know the truth? If there is an appropriate way to handle truth, of course there's an inappropriate way to handle truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The way that we hold truth most accurately is by holding truth in a spirit of love. Bishop Ed talks about handling truth in terms of hot dogs, which makes a lot of sense. He would tell you if you were here, I'm not putting words in his mouth, he would tell you that he loves hot dogs, that Bishop Ed loves the Nathan's hot dogs, he loves the ballpark hot dogs, he loves the Oscar Mayer hot dogs with a little bit of cheese inside of them. But he would also tell you that hot dogs are only as good as what you serve them in. I grew up in a place called Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we have a place there called Fort Wayne's famous Coney Island, and they're the best hot dogs in the world. And on their sign, in big neon letters, it says, our buns are steamed. Praise the Lord. <laughs> if we agree, Hot dogs are good. And if we agree hot dogs are best served on buns, then we ought not to serve hot dogs rolled in sand and wrapped in cardboard. There is a way that we can start with the good truth of who Jesus is and what he is up to in the world. And rather than handling that truth in love, we handle it with sand and cardboard. How we present truth to people and what we do with truth when we encounter other people matters because we can't carry the truth in anger. We can't carry the truth in disgust or in a sense of being exclusive or better or smarter or more right than everyone else. We can't carry truth with pride. The religious leaders in the gospels spoke the scriptures. They told the truth. But they use that truth as a way to manipulate people, as a whip to control people. They thought that people were made for rules, and Jesus tells them, no, no, the rules are made for the people. So Jesus tells them, when you teach, you actually make people twice the son of hell as yourself. There's a way of handling truth inappropriately. Remember, Lucifer spoke the truth to Jesus in the desert but he used it as the evil one. We can use truth in a way that although it's the truth, we've made it evil. We've rolled it in sand and served it on cardboard. If you're yelling at people, trying to control them with truth, you're actually making the truth something demonic, something it's not. See, truth only remains truth in a godly way when it's wrapped up in mercy. The hard part is that truth seems to be so black and white 
so binary. It's either true or it's not. And wrapping it up in mercy is such a gray area because mercy is gray area. Mercy says, I see what you did, and I know how we ought to respond, but I don't respond that way. We all receive this kind of mercy from God. And this is the kind of mercy we're called to offer the truth to other people. Paul also says in Ephesians 4 that we're to speak the truth in love. And speaking the truth in love is different than just speaking the truth. So do you just speak the truth? thinking that you're right? Remember, love is gentle. Love is respectful. Love respects the rights of others to not believe the truth and for them to not lose value in our eyes. People have the right to disobey God. People have the right to disobey God. He lets them do that. And he loves them regardless. So are we reflecting God in that posture or just our own way that we get upset with people that we disagree with? We have to be careful with truth and how we use it. So much so that I think we ought to be a little suspicious of ourselves when we approach the scriptures that we believe and know to be the truth. That to consider we know exactly what's going on when we open the text, we ought to be a little suspicious of ourselves. We ought to realize that Something more is going on here, that we belong to a communion of saints who's been reading these scriptures for thousands of years and interpreting what they say. And for us to open this book and these texts and to presume that we have it right is trouble. We have to approach the scriptures with humility, humbling ourselves before God, opening ourselves up to the Spirit and what He's doing through the texts, and understand that there's a long tradition of interpreting these words in a way that they're good news for the world. I think one of the things that's hard to do when we come to texts like Zechariah or most of what we see in the Old Testament is to wonder, how does God condone such violence? Why would God come and tell people that he's going to send a plague so that their flesh is going to rot off their bones and their eyes are going to rot in their sockets? It doesn't seem like something God would do. But again, we are a part of a tradition that's constantly interpreting the texts and what they're saying to us. So Origen, he talks about this idea of violence and overthrowing kingdoms in this way. He says, a kingdom of sin was in every one of us before we believed. But afterwards, Jesus came and he struck down all the kings who possessed kingdoms of sin in us. And he ordered us to destroy all those kings and to leave none of them. So unless Israel's physical wars bore the figure of spiritual wars, I do not think the books of Jewish history would ever have been handed down by the apostles to the disciples of Christ who came to teach peace. See, we have to be suspicious of ourselves when we come to the texts. So sanctuary, let's ha accurately handle truth so that we can be a prophetic people. Third, a prophetic people are people of faith. I think we should be people who trust God for things, who trust God for people. 
As you go about your day and you run into people in your work or your coffee shop and you bump into people, we should always be looking for ways, again, to be Melchizedek. We should always be looking for ways to bless people. How often do you have a conversation at work and you realize, man, this person probably needs some prayer in their lives? Have you asked them? Can I pray for you? And then in that moment, have you not just said, okay, I'll add you to my prayer list, but have you grabbed their hands and brought them in close and said, God, would you bless them? Do we take these moments to have faith for people? Because the prophetic people are people of faith. Remember, we are not responsible to fix everything for everybody. It's not our job to come in and to pray for them and then to figure out how to fix them. We trust God to fix the things in their lives. So here's the thing about faith is that we think faith, me believing in God and me knowing that I can pray and God acts on our behalf, that somehow faith puts us in control, and it does not. Faith is trust. Have you ever done a trust fall? There's a moment in there where you do not have control. That's what faith looks like. Faith is not intervening for God so that I can really get things straight for this person. Faith does not give us control over people's lives. That's witchcraft. Witchcraft is the work of taking things and boiling them all together and using incantations and spells in order to manipulate the situation. That's not what we do. That's not how prayer works. We're just simply called to be present to people, to have faith for people, to be Melchizedek, to come and bring the bread and the wine and to bless them and to move on. God will take care of it. God is not a vending machine. Finally, a prophetic people are a loving people first. The agape kind of love. Remember, the kind of love God has is based on himself, not on the person that his love is directed at. There's something about loving people and valuing people simply because they're people, not based on merit, not based on the value that they bring to our lives, but simply because of how God sees them. That God sees the people that you detest, and to him, they are a dream come true. To him, he loves them as much as he loves you. That's one of the hardest concepts for me to wrap my head around, is that the people that I love the least, God loves the same. Do we treat them as such? Do we treat them as brothers and sisters? This kind of love that we're called to is universal, with no qualifications. We see this in Matthew 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the righteous. This rain that comes and blesses and gives nourishment to the earth, he sends it to everyone. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we have to ask ourselves, how is the Father perfect? 
He loves unconditionally. On some level, if we are going to be the voice of God in the city, we have got to love people and not be thrown by their sin or their views of the world or their political affiliation. Instead, see them as a dream come true to God. Imagine if we were a people of faith who handled truth rightly, who walked by faith without violence or control, and people who loved well. Imagine if we could be a kind of people that embodied those things, how we handled truth, walking in faith, loving people, irrespective of who they are. Then I think we would be a prophetic people who spoke for God in this city, a people who fulfilled Zechariah's prophetic vision for the people of God. So sanctuary, this is the gospel according to Zechariah. What do I see? Creation clothed with joy. A city without walls or centuries. A table set for all the friends of God. Amen.